The episode you're about to hear is sponsored by Journal of Experimental Biology. The journal is published by the Company of Biologists, a nonprofit that's been supporting and inspiring the biological community since 1925. JEB publishes research about the form and function of organisms at all levels of biological organization. This season, we are partnering with JEB to highlight the research and scientists they publish. We work with journal editors to identify a topic that is perfect for big biology, then we produce the episode with the same rigor as we would any other regular episode. We discuss a recent paper in JEB on how smells produced by the microbial communities that live on birds alter how mating partners interact. Here's the show! The dark-eyed junco is an abundant songbird throughout North America. It's found everywhere from California to Alaska and Newfoundland to the Appalachians. Populations vary so dramatically in behavior and appearance that they can be mistaken for different species, but they can all interbreed. So biologically speaking, they're all juncos. But there's lots of questions there. Why do they look so different from place to place? Why does their body size differ? Why are some migratory and some resident? Ellen Ketterson has devoted her career to studying juncos. What drives her research is the question of what propels these vast changes in characteristics. Essentially, she studies the mechanisms that alter bird behavior. Ellen spent much of her career studying how natural selection shapes the amount of time and energy that male juncos invest in reproduction. This work focused primarily on the hormone testosterone, which acts as a kind of master dial that modifies trade-offs between reproduction and survival. More recently, she has studied juncos' migratory behaviors. Weirdly, some junco populations migrate thousands of miles each year, but others stay in place year-round. My dream now is what would it take to turn a migrant into a resident? That's a driving question for me, because I think it can happen pretty rapidly, uh, but it's a whole suite of traits that differ. Underlying her research is a commitment to discovering how rapidly organisms can adapt to new environments and whether evolutionary change will help birds cope with our changing climate. We spoke to Ellen about her past and current research, why microbes on birds make them smelly, and the joy of doing field biology with students and colleagues. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. All right, so you've been working on the, this one species for, for quite some time. And, uh, I mean, it's been, what, what I know about the work has been an incredible inspiration. There's an incredible diversity of things that have been done. I'm just curious why this species, um, where did that come from, and especially what's kept you working with it for so long? Right. Well, often when we begin with a system, it's one that our advisor already works with. So that was the case with okay. the junco and Eco- ecological inheritance. That's right. Study system, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it always comes true. back to that for you guys. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> and it was very satisfying to uh, go out and work with juncos in the winter, uh, because every time you spent time, you uh, were rewarded with data. So you would open a net, you'd capture a bird, put a band on it, be able to measure it and determine whether it was a male or a female. So I think it was a quick reward system, and then after that. I I think we stuck with the bird be, against instruction. I and mean, everybody would say, you can hear them all now, 
I'm interested in a question, and then I work with a very best system mm-hmm. to explore that question. And Seems I think like that's it's the mode, right? That's the mode, right? Yeah. So I think I'm more uh, an organismal biologist, evolutionary biologist, animal behaviorist, and so I'm interested in the organism, or even the hormone in the middle of the organism, and that accounts for uh, how how research unfolded. I would look at the bird and I'd say, why did it just do that? And then the trying to find out the answer to why did it just do that uh, became sort of a guiding principle, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, how important do you think it is to have a, a sort of strong natural history background for the, the species you work on? And, and you know, what, what would you say to students that are trying to navigate this issue of like, you know, do I focus on hypothesis and question or do I bring my love of particular taxa? Uh, to the table. Yeah. I'm not a person who has the same answer for everybody. It would matter who the student was Mm. or what their background was. But I think if you want the, to me, if you want the biology to be really meaningful, even if you're spending a lot of time looking at sequences, you want to know where those sequences came from. So nucleic acids, who who made that nucleic acid? And if it was a bird, then I think it's important to uh, connect with the organism that generated the tissues or the samples that you're working with. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I feel like the students that I get that, uh, you know, seem to get off the ground the fastest and, and do really good work tend to have a very strong natural history background. They, you know, they love some group or some, you know, some species in a way that you don't often hear about, you know, among professional biologists, right? Because it, it's it's somehow sort of taboo to have the love of this stuff because we're working on hypotheses and questions, right? And yet, at, at heart, of course, we all love our organisms. Um, and I, I don't know, I, you know, I feel like, I think it's sort of widely known, but a lot of the currents in science are sort of running against being a natural historian and just spending a lot of time out watching your organisms and understanding their their interactions with other species and their ecology. Um, I, I guess I, I guess I hope there's more of that going forward. So so what what about you, Marty? How how motivated are you by just love of taxon? Well, I mean, I'm I'm like Ellen in a sense that I started working on one species and never never stopped too. Um, I am I mean, the reason that I work on that species has become because it's very charming, but it has it started and and the main reason we continue with it is is really a question driven thing. Yeah. Um, so I wonder. I mean, I wanted to take Art's question to me and pass it to you uh-huh. because the the system the Junko does have traits as a species that makes it unique. I mean, this seems to be some of the some of the things that you produced have been leveraging. You know, it's broad distribution or, you know, the fact that it's a migrant and these other things about it. Yeah. So it may have started from a natural history, but it seems like you've sort of embraced, you've, you've leaned into those things and learned something that maybe isn't even possible in other systems because the species don't do that or you're just maximizing what can be done. Well, this is a chance to talk about the junco and how yes, much I like that. it. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so let me say that it's an abundant bird, and it is broadly distributed all across North America. It's variable from place to place. So uh, it's interesting that the juncos that live in California or on the East Coast look so different from one another that people would think they were different species. Mm. But in fact, when they uh, when their distributions abut, they, they interbreed, so they don't qualify as separate species. But there's lots of questions there. Why do they look so different from some place to place? Why does their body size differ? Why are some migratory and some resident? So having a a broad geographic group of birds to work with 
is a lot of fun. Then another thing is we're all interested in changing climate and how organisms are going to respond to changing climate with a bird like the junco and really anything else in eastern North America. It, uh, where it lives now was covered by ice. And that was only 15,000 years ago. So how did that bird manage to occupy regions down on the Gulf Coast during the last glacial maximum? And how did its biology enable it to move northward and reoccupy all of the regions that were ice covered? And then what can we extrapolate from that to try to predict how rapidly the junco and other organisms can respond to environmental change now. We, they don't have 15,000 years. They have a whole <laughs> yeah. lot less than 15,000 years. But whatever those mechanisms were will be put to the test mm -hmm. uh, to see whether mm -hmm. they can keep up. Mm -hmm. There's 186 million fewer juncos in the world than when I started to study them wow. in 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, it's a huge percentage decrease, and it's not unique to juncos, we're missing three billion birds in North America, for those of you who will have read about that, owing to a lot of people who care about birds, and then they go out and count them, and then they report them, and then we can see how they've changed over time. But the junco is hard hit, and uh, I, I would like to be able to help the bird. What, what about direct effects of climate change, you know, shifts in temperatures and seasonality and that kind of thing? I think all those things are likely to matter because the timing of reproduction is so important. And it's influenced by something that isn't changing, that's day length, but it's also influenced by warming. Uh, and so when you first build your nest in the spring, if you're a female junco, you're paying attention to how warm it is and whether the insects will be available to you know, feed your babies when the time comes. And the cues of when to migrate and when to breed are right now getting mixed up. And as a result, um, bird populations are often experiencing a mismatch between when they would traditionally reproduce or migrate and when the conditions are optimal for that now. So understanding the mechanisms that determine timing is something that we're studying uh, seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. So maybe we should spend some time talking about those mechanisms of, of timing. So what, what, what are you finding? Oh, well, yeah, let me tell you about something that's cool about the junco. <laughs> there are a lot of things that are cool about the junco, but uh, I mentioned that some populations are migratory and some are not. So in the winter, the migratory populations fly south from Canada and coexist with the populations in the eastern U.S. and the Appalachians that don't migrate. So they're experiencing in the spring the same cues, the same day length, the same temperature, the same food, the same flock mates, they're all like all together. And then, but they're diverging in their internal uh, physiology and readiness to reproduce. So what is it about the bird that experiences the same cues but does different things? And that leads us into receptors in the brain that measure the day length, uh, leads us into aspects of the, the brain that determine when you're gonna overeat and when you aren't. Uh, all of, and the potential then for populations diverging from one another or not. So if they migrate later, then we might expect more opportunity for gene flow between the migrants and the residents. Mm. If they migrate earlier, as we might expect, then there's a greater potential for uh, more permanent divergence between migrants and residents. Mm. Mm. So mm. I think that it ranges from 
the organism and how it interacts with its environment all the way up to uh, maintenance of biodiversity or um, creation of new biodiversity. Pretty cool, don't you think? And so did, mm-hmm. did I understand that you're seeing earlier migrations of the migratory ones and so greater separation of when they reproduce? That's and the so prediction. you think there's sort of That's more separation among populations now? Yeah. So yeah. we're yeah. actually studying the mechanisms that the birds use to sense the environment and then the consequences uh-huh. for them. When do they grow their gonads? Uh, when do they become hyperphagic? That means eat too much uh, in order to get fat in order to migrate. And what are the mm-hmm. physiological neuroendocrine mechanisms that create those differences in the same environment? And what are the implications, which is more what we're hypothesizing as opposed to measuring? Yeah. Yeah, for divergence. Yeah. So how do you put those two things together, what you were saying before, about the, the number of juncos that have disappeared? Do you know whether it's disproportionately the migrant population? So what fraction is it migrant and resident? And if you run the clock forward about how they're becoming I don't want to say different species, but they're becoming different types of organisms that might not interbreed anymore. Yeah. Is that going to exacerbate the rate at which they disappear? or? So I think these two bodies of knowledge, the loss in bird number and the studies we've been doing about mechanism, are only just now potentially coming together. Mm-hmm. So different people are counting the birds than people like us who are measuring the mechanisms. The counts that are done to determine the bird losses are uh, citizen scientists. So they get in their car, they're all following a protocol. It's early June and they drive a route and they get off at frequent intervals. They listen and they look to see what birds are there and then they report back to a database manager. That's being done in Canada and in the United States. So I'm trying to build on your question of, is it the migrants that are harder hit or is it the residents that are harder hit? And I think we don't know yet because many of the reports simply say junko and don't have Mm -hmm. a way of knowing whether that was a migratory bird or a resident bird. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Nice. So um, I I know you've also worked quite a bit on uh, other aspects of hormonal coordination of life histories. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about about that? And maybe define what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was involved in maybe 10 or 15 years of study on how natural selection operates on male juncos to influence how much of their time and energy they invest in reproduction, which would be traded off potentially with how much time and energy they invest in survival. So that's a kind of a classic life history trade-off. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I try to produce more offspring at the risk of dying earlier, or do I conserve a bit and uh, hope to be back next year to breed again? And the hormone testosterone, I think we were able to show, plays an important role in that allocation to reproduction and survival. So we did an experiment. We did it year after year of capturing male juncos. This was in the Appalachian Mountains uh, in the spring inserting a little tube underneath their skin which would release testosterone if it was packed with testosterone or release nothing if it was empty and serving as a control. So like half the birds got an experimental elevation of their circulating testosterone and the other half of the birds were there for comparison and didn't. Mm -hmm. And then our sort of overall goal was how does the hormone influence the phenotype, which is the collective attributes of the animal? How often it sings? Uh, does it feed its offspring very often? Um, 
on and on. What does it smell like? (laughs) For example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Uh, So many, many attributes or traits in the bird were influenced by experimentally elevated testosterone. And uh, in comparison to the controls. And they had more offspring. So they had more offspring, not so much with their, what we call social mates, the females that they were paired with, but with extra pair mates. So they were out and about copulating with females in the neighborhood and increasing their reproductive success by uh, engaging in that behavior. Mm -hmm. But a consequence of that was reduced survival. So they were less likely to return the following year to breed again if they'd been treated with testosterone than if they hadn't. So I, what do I think is cool about that is you do, you have something you can, one signaling molecule, you put it in an animal, you ask how it responds, uh, and it's not just one way. It's lots of different ways that it responds. And the outcome of that then is an integrated organism whose overall behavior and life history trade-offs have, have been modified. And then you can say, well, how does that work in a new right. environment or something like that? So that yeah. was a long story. And I'd like to say that we were kind to the birds uh, in doing this work as well. I think it's important to understand that you can do experiments in the wild with birds. And then when the experiment's over, you take the implant out, the bird flies away, and uh, and you feel... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's important. Yeah. Just a question about these two related things. So, um, you know, so you give a bird testosterone and it has more offspring that that season and then so that should enhance its fitness but at a cost of survival so it's less likely to survive into a following year do those things balance out like in terms of the overall fitness equation right that's a very good question and i bet a very hard one to answer (laughs) well it was a hard one to answer and it led to another whole series of experiments that may be more than than you want to get into but um the net fitness of the testosterone males was greater than that of the control males. So while they had lower survival, they had more than compensatory greater reproductive success. So that leaves you with a with a paradox, with a you know kind of an unanswered mm-hmm. question. Well, then so why? why don't they evolve greater yeah. testosterone yeah, in the wild? Right? Testosterone. Yeah. Why doesn't everybody have more testosterone? So the 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 next step we took was to say, well, maybe in this created world of testosterone, if a male were to produce more testosterone naturally, it might produce uh, females, offspring, relatives that also produced higher testosterone and that the constraint on males might actually be that their female offspring would be compromised by Hmm. having been treated with testosterone. Hmm. So we followed up on that and we treated females with testosterone directly and compared their reproductive success to controls and theirs was lower. So our experimental results were consistent with somebody would something people would call a correlated response to selection uh-huh. where the negativity uh, came later. The negativity yeah. was indirect through relatives as opposed to direct through males. Mm-hmm. The, right. the story fits together um, and it, but of course it's we have to we'd actually have to create males with higher testosterone and measure that in their offspring in a natural way to be certain about that explanation. But it, it, I, that, I think it makes works. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that yeah. that's the the only mechanism? Sort of. I you know I'm biased every time we any anything it always comes back to disease for me, 
And I know you've thought a lot, especially in recent times, about the role of disease. But because disease is not really predictable in time or space, I mean, testosterone maybe can't be high because occasionally it has negative effects should you bump into the, the bugs. It's just you wouldn't always see that. And you'd have to look at testosterone effects. It, it depresses the immune system is what you're saying. It depresses the, well, I'm trying not to overstate because it could work multiple different ways. But yeah, we could, we could just say it depresses the immune system. And then if you are in a place where it's very likely you're going to get infected, you will pay the cost. It's just that infection is so, you know, spatially and temporally dynamic that yeah. it's more of a bet hedge than it is an absolute. Right. I think that's very possible that it could be disease or anything else that varies over time and space. So in the years that we did our study, males were able to have a net gain in fitness if they were treated with testosterone. But in another year, there might be less food, and mm. so females would be less able to compensate for the fact that testosterone reduces parental care in males. And if the females couldn't compensate, then uh, their reproductive success would be lower. And that's mm -hmm. just one of many possibilities. And another one, since you're showing interest, I want to... <laughs> Let's keep going. Yeah. Let's build on this a little bit, which is, uh, as I said, our ratio of testosterone-treated males to controls was 50-50. Every other bird yeah. got a testosterone or not. But the advantages of being a testosterone male and being better able to sire offspring with neighboring females would be frequency dependent. That is, the more testosterone-treated males or the more high, naturally elevated testosterone males there are in the oh, population, yeah. Yeah. the more they would be um, trading siring abilities right. with one another. So a male might be siring more offspring with another female, but that female's male might be siring more offspring huh. with him or with his uh, female. So it becomes a back and forth kind of thing that the advantages would decrease as the proportion of testosterone-treated males increase. Huh. That's a hard can, experiment. Can you imagine do. some sort of long-term fluctuations in the yeah. evolutionary trajectory of, of testosterone levels in these populations? I could imagine that. I think we didn't even deal with the disease point as fully as, as uh, Marty did, but you can't predict the coming and going of disease. To a, you, to a certain extent, you can predict the coming and going of natural nest predation. So a real determinant of reproductive success. In order for the testosterone male to benefit, he has to be able to produce offspring. If there are no mm -hmm. offspring being produced because all the eggs and the young are being eaten by chipmunks and mice and deer and uh, snakes, then, uh, then again that advantage would disappear. And as it turns out, chipmunks are a main nest predator, and their frequency goes up after a a masting event in the oak trees. So uh -huh. oak trees are abundant on the study area. They produce acorns. The chipmunks eat the acorns. They don't starve over the course of the winter. Then they're more abundant, have more babies, and then they eat more offspring. Mm. So <laughs> anything cycling in the environment could impact this relative advantage of one type of male over another and mm. uh, making it, you know, kind of endlessly interesting too, yeah, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. But it, it, endlessly complex, too. I mean, it's almost unbelievable that you would find effects of a single testosterone treatment in a context like that where there's so much going on. Yeah. I mean, that, that type of thing, people will argue, uh, well, depending on the type of biologist you are, you often hear, why would you go into a system like that that's so complicated? You can do a manipulation, <laughs> and it's hard to see anything. 
But when you do, I think the point that's missed is like in your case, when yeah. you see something, boy, can you be confident it's going on? There's something meaningful there with all of the other noise that should have just yeah. swamped it. I think that's right. Yeah. If you can detect an effect in nature with all the other things that are varying that you can't yeah, control, <laughs> you can believe that there's something real yeah, yeah going yeah. on there. Yeah, awesome. So what is in the Junko system? What do you think is, if you had to pick either your favorite discovery or the type of work that you... You know, you, the, the study where you said, well, that that's the big contribution. That was what, you know, years before was building up to. And I think that's going to have an impression on the community. What would that be? Wow. I don't have a ready answer to that question, okay? I can remember, you know, a time when I did an analysis and I was sitting on my bed, which is a place I like to work, uh, and something came out that, I, that was unanticipated. So what was I really – I was – looking for a connection between how many mates a bird has and how many offspring it produces. And that's, that relationship is often called a Bateman's gradient, and the more mates you have as a male, the more offspring you produce, which creates uh, a strong selective pressure on males to mate multiply. And females in the original study were, were kind of flat. Like they had more mates. This was Drosophila. They didn't have any more offspring. So females were not seen as benefiting from multiple mating. And that was how it was. Finding extra pair fertilizations was new in my time. Mm-hmm. So everybody goes, oh, yeah, I know all about extra pair fertilizations. But there was a time when I thought, not my juncos, <laughs> you know, surely. <laughs> That's right. It was, it was but, taboo to think that they were ever doing that before. <laughs> Passerines were supposed to be the yeah, you know, never, you know, ever That's right. doing the, those types of things. The picture of monogamy. Yeah. So I plotted for males, uh, based on their extra pair fertilizations, how many offspring they produced and how many mates they had. And the number went up, as predicted. The more mates, the more offspring. And then I plotted it for females. And the same thing was true. Hmm. So the more mates they had, the more offspring they produced as well. And female Bateman's gradients were um, not anticipated. And without knowing about extra pair fertilizations, you'd never be able to see any of that. So that was an exciting moment. I plotted it, and there was the line going up for the females, <laughs> you know, one, two, three mates, however many offspring they produce. So that was a very exciting moment. Is the steepness of the line comparable? Uh, is the, the, the sort of a turn the same between the sexes? It's not that... quite as steep as it is in males, but it's not dinky okay, either. Okay. You know, it, huh. it, it's paralleling it. And, and then you and get... So what explains the deviation from the expected Bateman yeah. relationship? I, well, you can't tell from just that relationship, whether females are being favored because they seek extra males or whether males can recognize females that would have been more fecund, more productive, whether or not they'd uh, had extra mates, but the males are targeting them so that they could see, if it were a fish, you might say a fat female fish who had a lot of eggs in her, then it might attract all the males, and then Uh, you'd see relationships like that, more mates, more offspring, but it wouldn't be because 
the male, the female, I'm sorry, was seeking those extra parafertilizations. So both of those things are a possible explanation and a limit to something like a, a Bateman's gradient. And we don't really know. We don't, for the, uh -huh. my bird at least, we don't have a, a measure of whether males are targeting mm. um, more fecund females than yeah, not. Yeah. How common are these uh, relationships for females and other species of, of birds and, you know, uh, other vertebrates, other non-vertebrates? Right. A few other bird papers have come out since then making the same point and raising that same query about um, the explanation, whether or uh -huh. not the females are the seekers versus the targets of, yeah. of extra pair mating attempts. Okay, great. So was that the contribution that your colleagues would say was a big impact, or was that your one of your favorite ones? Well, I remember the moment, which is why I described it. Okay. But yeah, I can say the paper that I was part of that has been quoted the most was something called Adaptation and Constraint, um, Hormonally Mediated Life History Trade-Offs or something like that. Mm -hmm. so, so what does the constraint in the title mean? Well, okay, let's see if I can do this. So imagine that you have a series of attributes, parental behavior, home range size, singing rate, that are mediated by a hormone, and then you may have some that are uh, down-regulated by the hormone. We mentioned ever so briefly the immune function might be compromised a bit, but that multiple impacts of a single molecule on an array of traits creates uh, a complex that works well, say it's adapted to a particular environment. Now you're gonna change that environment. Junkos moved into the city in Southern California when they had traditionally been a, a rural bird. And certain things that uh, were characteristic of the rural population diverged in the city population in a really short period of time, uh, say 30 or 40 years, really right away about 10 years, but now it's the years are adding up. And the birds that occupied the city uh, were more parental than their counterparts. They were less aggressive than their counterparts. They were bolder than their counterparts. So that all sounds good. I mean, that sounds like sort of city-adapted kind of a things. But what we don't know is when you change the environment and a molecule like a hormone upregulates and downregulates some things, and not all of the things that it regulates are advantageous in the new environment. That is, you may have connections between testosterone and attributes that worked well in one environment, but only some of them work well in the next environment. And so that connection between the hormone and the attribute is gonna slow things down. Mm -hmm. You have to wait for uh, natural selection to act. You have to wait for you know new genotypes to emerge. And that would be an example of, I hope it was clear, that'd be an example of how hormone might act as a constraint on yeah, adaptation. Yeah. So, so that's a way of saying that the hormones are kind of, uh, you know, they have these pleiotropic tentacles that, that that reach across the body and throughout all the behaviors. And, and, you know, if you, if you change it, you're changing multiple things simultaneously. Is That's that exactly a fair right. statement? <laughs> yeah, I like that. I like Vivid that image language. too. He uses tentacles a lot. Does yeah, he? I, I have to work tentacles into every conversation. So. <laughs> There's always tentacles. <laughs> we, you use the word pleiotropy too for a single compound having multiple effects. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh -huh. exactly right. Yeah. That's the basis of this idea that uh, you've got an adapted adjustment of multiple effects and now you're going to change the environment and it may not immediately yeah. uh, match the new environment. So, yeah. 
Nice. Yeah, Tentacles. Nice. Okay. Cliotropy. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> so I'm going to ask a question that, um, let's just continue on the, the line with the hormones is adaptations and constraints. Is it an accident that you did these manipulations with testosterone? I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of hormones that one could pick. Is there some reason that of that corneocopia? <laughs> was it obvious to work on testosterone? or? Oh, you know, everything is a function of the time, mm-hmm. right? And so I was heavily influenced by a paper by John Wingfield uh, and others that he was working with that was showing a comparative cross-species relationship between testosterone and mating system. Mm. And so certain birds that had polygynous mating systems had a different seasonal profile of testosterone than other birds that were socially monogamous. And a person who was a postdoc with John Wingfield, his name was Bob Hegner, and house sparrows, sparrows. that's Marty's bird, (laughs) uh, had begun to do uh, manipulation with testosterone on uh, reproductive success in, in the house sparrow. So the work that we did was inspired entirely by that. That's why we chose that hormone, and that's why we did that in time. There was another little part of it, too, I think, preceding the manipulations with testosterone. We had been asking whether males were enforced to being monogamous. This is before we knew about extra fertilizations because they were necessary to raise offspring. So that was the hmm. traditional kind of David Lack view of avian mating systems and particularly songbirds is that males and females paired up because they were both necessary in order to raise offspring and uh, that that was the explanation but just about that time a couple of people had started to do what we called male removal studies so before we did the testosterone we simply had a series of experiments where we caught the male held him in an aviary for a portion of the summer uh, let him go at the end, and measured the ability of females to rear offspring on their own. And we were, that was another magic moment, I think. <laughs> we were so struck by their capacity. So they did really quite well without a male. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> now, after the young left the nest and the female was trying to tend fledglings, uh, that was too hard for her to do on her own. But males feed from the very start, mm. uh, and yet they seem to be kind of unnecessary. So we said, yeah, but, you know, that's not a really perfect simulation of nature because there's no counterpart in the system for a male simply to disappear, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe, you know, females would have enforced male parental behavior not by needing it so much as by not being willing to stay mated to males that didn't provide a lot of care. So females might be, quote, enforcing male parental behavior uh, by deserting any male that didn't do his part. So we thought, okay, we need a natural manipulation that will reduce male parental care and then see whether or not females will desert those males because they're bad parents. Hmm. And so that's what we set out to do. And then sitting at nests, looking at them, counting how many times the male would come to the nest to feed, we noticed they were singing all the time. They were sitting above the nest. They might not have been feeding as much, but they were singing and singing and singing (laughs) and singing. And we had a magic moment. Uh, Wow, we didn't change just one thing. We All we set out to do was Mm -hmm. to reduce parental behavior. What we then found out is we did a whole lot of things besides that, 
of course, it wasn't we, it was the hormone. Um, but testosterone then is connected to various tissues in the brain, in the periphery, in the syrinx, um, in the colloquial protuberance, that just on and on, you put testosterone in the circulation, then there are receptor molecules, steroid receptors, that uh, are located in the various tissues and they respond. And they don't all respond in the same way and not every tissue has a testosterone response mechanism, but the overall outcome, the net effect, is owing to this single molecule's impact on so many different um, aspects, so many different parts of the animal. But uh, influenced by very much Bob Hegner and John Wingfield having our own question that we didn't have a satisfactory answer to, which is what, uh, how did, why did males uh, care for their offspring, and putting those two sort of ideas together, and then having the totally for us unexpected outcome that we had changed a whole bunch of things, and we now needed to think about pleiotropy, we now needed to think about adaptation and constraint, yeah. and yeah. Uh, made it yeah. a very rich and exciting set of ideas huh. to be part of. I I have a related question about uh, this this idea you've set up of um, you know hor hormones having influences on many different systems and many different tissues. So so what are the consequences for the way that endocrine systems e evolve? And is it is it more likely that you would get evolution at the sort of receptor and and tissue level? So the way that the tissues respond to the circulating hormones than it would be to get evolutionary changes in the hormone levels itself because of all those pleiotropic right. effects. Is that? Well, I love thinking about that. That's a very that. good question. <laughs> and I had a, a student, well, two students. So um, Kim Roswell, who's now very much her own independent scientist, and uh, uh, Chrissy Kaywalt. And they talked and thought a lot about, so we did it together, um, signal and receiver, phenotypic integration being a product of some things resulting in an overall upregulation of the signal and some things resulting from a placement or location or downregulation of the receiver and that both so the answer to your question as you asked it art is is when is evolution going to act on the signal and when is it going to act on the response to the signal it's going to act on both yeah. And I think we think of those tissues as, with their receptors there as sort of little lights, you know, and then they could blink on or they could blink off. And so when you're trying to understand how, a ver you know, the vertebrate neuroendocrine system resulting in species that vary so widely with respect to mating system and lifespan and everything else is that sometimes selection is acting on a integrating signal and sometimes selection is acting on a peripheral winking in and out kind of a signal and understanding the whole requires understanding both. Do, do you think that testosterone is representative? Could you have picked something else? Could Wingfield and, and his group have discovered something else that could have caused similar effects or is testosterone special in some way that it has these many more tentacles or many uh, more sophisticated tentacles than other yeah. No, I think it's probably lesser rather than greater, uh -huh. if one were to say. So I just talked about the happenstance that led us to picking that hormone, our interest in parental behavior, and the fact that the literature of the day was focused on that. But it could have been corticosterone. It could have been growth hormone. I think growth hormone is probably really under-investigated in this way. And Marty and I had a conversation earlier today about how many things in nature turn on body size. And if we 
think of a hormone, and this is oversimplification because it's only focusing on the signal part, not the receptor part, but as a dial. And you know you can dial up that hormone or you can dial down that hormone and see a series of regulated responses that reflect that, then you can explain a lot yeah. with growth hormone. And so I, uh, I think, if anything, testosterone is probably a smaller player than some other coordinating signaling molecules that we find in the body. Huh. If you could do something different than testosterone now, if you reset the clock and start with a different hormone, have you thought about what that would be? What if, what, did you tell us growth hormone? Is that Was that it? I suppose that's probably the okay. way I would go. I think other people have done are doing a good job like that with that, snakes and other organisms. But, you know, the Junko, I can't even imagine the question, Marty. That was sort of, that was me for yeah, 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 yeah. 15 sure, or 20 sure. years. And now I'm interested in migratory behavior and maybe the roles of hormones and migratory behavior. My dream now is what would it take to turn a migrant into a resident? I'd see it. That's the, a driving question for me because I think it can happen pretty ra- rapidly, uh, but it's a whole suite of traits that differ mm-hmm. in terms of when you breed and whether or not you're able to migrate. So is there some lock out there or really some key that I could find the lock for that I could turn it in to say that's what happens when you turn huh, a migrant huh. into a resident? So that's my dream now. Okay, right. okay. And that might be a hormone. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Whatever the hormone, the hormonal key is. <laughs> So you've had uh, a number of collaborators and a number of papers on uh, bird olfaction and the way that birds produce odors and the consequences of those odors for the way they behave and they interact with one another. Uh, I had a recent one in in Journal of Experimental Biology that we're going to talk about. Um, But uh, just just love this whole idea. And maybe let's start by just talking about birds and olfaction more more generally. So so how like I personally don't think of olfaction as being really important for birds, but uh, clearly it can be under some circumstances. So just in general, how big of a deal is olfaction for birds? Right. Well, it's a great question. And I'm I think of myself as an ornithologist as well as an animal behaviorist and evolutionary biologist. So I love birds. And I've taught about them. And certainly when I was coming up, and that's a while now, I, you know, I acknowledge that, but still, um, the phrase would have been birds don't smell. And it wouldn't be that they aren't stinky. It would be that you know, <laughs> they don't have the capacity to right. smell. And I think the big uh, evidence of that was that they have small olfactory bulbs in their uh, brains. And so they didn't seem to have much tissue dedicated to smell, particularly as compared to mammals. And so you look at a mouse brain and the olfactory bulbs at the end of the forebrain, and, you know, they're huge in relation to the whole brain as compared to um, most birds. And then there would be um, statements, well, birds don't smell except maybe vultures do, or birds don't smell except maybe swifts do. And so there'd be these kind of exceptions, (laughs) uh, but the generalization uh, still held. And it's a little bit like the other story I told you. We th- This work ultimately all should be credited to Daniel Whitaker, who was a postdoc in, in my research group and, and has developed it and was the person who's the lead author. But when we first got into this, we read a paper, so common. We've got a system we're interested in. You see a paper, you think, huh? 
And juncos vary by sex and by population in terms of how many white feathers they have on their tails. And when they males court a female, they puff up their feathers and they spread their tails. So the tail white seemed like a really important signal of a male's attractiveness, quality, condition, whatever. Um, and then I read a paper that said that red knots, which are a migratory shorebird, change the secretions that they produce in their preen gland. So the preen gland is a little bit of tissue. It's at the base of the tail. And it was known to produce waxes. Uh, and that's what this paper was about. So before the red knot shorebirds flew north, the composition of the waxes in the preen gland changed. Then those got applied by the bird to the feathers. And the effect was to make them more highly reflective. So mm. the sun shining on the feathers uh, reflected more light if they if the waxes that were put on that were changed seasonally so these waxes got ready uh, for the courtship period and then the reflection was greater so because tail white was important to juncos we thought okay well maybe the same thing is doing we'll look at the waxes not thinking anything about volatiles didn't know about volatiles we'll look at the waxes in the preen gland and see if that affects uh, the feather reflectance and we teamed up with uh, Milos Novotny and Helena Soini, and they're organic chemists here at Indiana University and well-known uh, for their work on separating and identifying compounds. And uh, so we brought them some secretions of the preen gland in the juncos, and, and we had reason to think, too, that it might vary seasonally because that was the case with the red knots, so they would have been different in the winter and the summer. So we held some birds on uh, long days and short days to try to create an internal environment back to testosterone, too, thinking testosterone might be the cause uh, of how the preen secretions would, would differ seasonally. And then it turned out that um, their, their machine wasn't really very good for waxes. <laughs> <laughs> but their machine was good. This is GCMS. Their machine was good for identifying a little short... Uh, carbon, 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 acids um, that have odor. They're volatile. Hmm. And that wasn't what we expected at all. And we weren't ready for them to smell. And we might have just said, you know, birds don't smell. But fortunately, <laughs> Danielle Whitaker came along and she thought, oh my, she had studied primates. She was an anthropologist and a primatologist. And so she had never heard that birds can't smell. So she ran with this. <laughs> and... Uh, worked with Soini and Novotny to identify comparing species, comparing sexes, comparing seasons, uh, finding out whether females were attracted to different kinds of odors, uh, finding that in the population that we studied in Virginia, males that had higher reproductive success had volatile perfumes, volatile mixtures that were more, quote, male-like. So there were male and female differences in the composition of the preen oil with respect to the volatiles that are created. And the male type and the female type turned out to be kind of a predictor of male reproductive success. So we've talked earlier about how males acquire reproductive success through extra pair fertilizations. And what Danielle was able to show was the males that had the most male-like volatile compounds from their preen oil got more extra pair fertilizations. And the males that were more female-like 
I don't know how I feel about this, but this is what the data were, okay? <laughs> the males that were more female-like in their volatile composition in their preen oil had fewer and lower reproductive success. And as it turns out in the juncos, the microbes are responsible for producing from their metabolism the compounds that serve to be volatile and add an odor awesome. to the bird. So, so they're metabolizing the preen oil uh, yes. itself and turning it into these smaller, more volatile molecules. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's so cool, right? That's yeah. really yeah, cool. Amazing. Very weird, but yeah. I mean, we could really go on with this all day, but it's clear that it's so early that I think a lot of our questions would be, I'm not sure, but, but I think the one that must have been something that you guys have discussed a lot, in fact, I know it is because it was part of the discussion of papers, is how this is going to force us to think about sexual selection and the fact that you know, some part of what's being chosen is coming from these microbes. And if you add on social and networks and these types of things is the way that it's transmitted, this really complicates things, doesn't it? I mean, where, yeah. where are you, where is Danielle sitting right now with this kind of complexity? You know, this is not directly responsive yet, but I think the three of us and people who study ecology and evolution and animal behavior are drawn to complexity. Mm. So, I, you know, we're not really reductionist by nature. I think I, I'm not most excited when I find out that I've controlled 59 things and then I can see an effect of A on B. You yeah, know, yeah, I want to see yeah. it as we spoke earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, does, is this factor important enough that it emerges uh, despite all the, the background complexity? And I think the other one, the paper just came out this week on the holobiont, which is, you know, the subject of selection, this would be a point of view, is not so much the individual, not so much the host to these microbes, but the emergent coalescence of something that's the individual plus its microbes mm-hmm. uh, that selection is, is acting on. And of course, that's not just with respect to preen glands, right? I right. mean, we got, you're covered with bacteria, yep. I'm yep. covered with bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that hard to understand at first. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I think our whole perception of the levels at which selection acts and the levels at which organisms and their commensals respond is is going to be subject to new theor- theory and uh, generate just many, many interesting studies, I would think. Yeah. Is that what you think, too? Uh, I, I do. I mean, I, I'm just super interested in... in um you know, the fact that we're compositions of our own genetics and then all of these other things that are much smaller and evolving much faster and they get traded very rapidly between us. And it, I think it totally blurs the, the levels of selection, exactly as you said. Yeah, and, and they and, transfer and, genes horizontally. And they, I mean, they do all of these amazing things that we can't do. Yeah, 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 amazing. Do you consider the junco to be a model organism and sort of if so why and if not what kind would you give it a label is there a label to to identify things like it that have been used in the service of so much diversity in biology Hmm. I think you all have a history of talking about this that I don't, so I can, you know, just, uh, just there's give There's no it. minefield I think here. Of, yeah, there's not intention. I think of the junco as a representative north temperate passerine bird. So it's common in many ways, builds nests, lays eggs, may have one brood, may have two, um, is seasonal, so it doesn't breed in the winter. It's uh, broadly distributed 
something else I've thought about it as representative. I guess really that it's socially monogamous and males are territorial and females are breeders. So those are just standard traits for a whole lot of um, sparrows, not just, but birds that live in, in North America. And they're abundant, mm-hmm. and they nest on the ground where you can find them, and they thrive in captivity, so they'll eat the kind of diets that we can provide for them. So that makes them both representative and reasonably easy to study. They don't breed in captivity. That's a big <laughs> pain in the, you know, words that I can't use on the Giant radio. Giant <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, that's their disappointment for me. And if I were to be able to do change one thing, I would be able to uh, successfully rear juncos in captivity. So model system, I usually think of model system as more something like a Drosophila, something like a Arabidopsis for animals and plants that many, many, many people are studying and that they're jointly finding things out about it that build a lab representative of your, you know, your flowering plant and your uh, insect. Um, and I think that's, I, I'm okay with that. I, I want to reintegrate biology. I'm just finishing a product project that involves that concept. And I think we're really good, we people who don't necessarily study model organisms, at measuring their attributes in nature and their ranges and their competitive interactions and their predator-prey interactions and all the things that fascinate us as, as ecologists. Um, but we may not know enough about gene tra- transcription. We may not know enough about early developmental effects uh, on, on how the organisms turn out or how the ranges spread. So we have a very intriguing, very complex, very diverse theater to work in, but we could benefit from having more molecular biology as part of our explanation. So I, I'm yeah. reluctant to dis sure, sure. Uh, yeah. model systems, and I would be happy to in, be able to have the tools that the mice and the Drosophila and the Arabidopsis people have that we don't. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I really like that distinction you made between the sort of relative roles of, of model systems and non-model systems. And you called, I think, in the course of your explanation, juncos are not a model system, right? Because it's not a, a sort of big enough group of people working on them. but you know, I, I think I agree with you, right? That the model systems involves focal species that for whatever reason, there's been kind of network effects so that there's enough labs working on them and sharing tools that you get this sort of explosion of knowledge about them because of all of that that tool and, and data sharing. And And to me, you know, some of the most interesting work seems to be done at the peripheries of the model system world, right? So, you know, they get all these tools and then somebody comes along and says, oh, that's awesome. You know, we can apply that to these other 40 species of Drosophila, you know, for which we have interesting ecological and evolutionary questions, right? So they're leveraging all that that power to do things just next door conceptually, you know? Uh, so. Yeah. I think, I mean, we don't need to talk too much about it, but to put in context why I asked the question, the model organism, I mean, I a, I think there's a lot of people would use different definitions for model. I mean, especially in modern times, we usually use model for genetic tools, right? That's <laughs> our sort of read-in. But we've had lots of conversations um, over the course of several episodes about especially the role of context. I mean, that, that might be one of the most pervasive themes for practically every episode that we've had. 
such that if you're thinking about doing model organism work where the focus is on genetics, and if you put context on the same plane as genetics, studying model organism means that you're leaving out you know, the other half of the equation. And so, yes, you come up with tools, but maybe it's not an accident art that a lot of the what you're calling the coolest stuff is happening at the interface between more natural and more contextually meaningful plus mm -hmm. the tools. Yeah. So the, the context, yeah. I mean, like we talked with Paul Davies about information, right? Information, it's the thing in life that distinguishes it from non-life and information only makes sense if understood in a context. So the defining feature, at least in Paul's and some other people's eyes, about life is information, which is inherently about context. But but I think, I think you can tell from this conversation that the three of us are into context and, you know, you yeah. evolutionary, right? <laughs> we are indeed. So. We like our context, yeah. What do you think about all that, Ellen? Oh, I'm very interested. But And I wouldn't have known that the part that was left out in the model systems could be reduced to or at least captured by the word context. But I agree. So I, I do think that I maybe referred earlier to shaving away all the potential sources of variation to find out yeah, yeah. how something works it, with just the compounds that, that you put in the test tube. And, uh, but that's not the way it is out in the world. That's not the way it is uh, for organisms making their way. So it's, it's not going to ever be a complete story. And I suppose also potentially a misleading story because the context matters to the outcome. And if it's sh if you shaved away the wrong thing, then you're not going to observe something that can be mapped into reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we just Absolutely. keep getting so many examples of things like this where NIH a few years ago realized that if females are studied, the fundamentals described in the context of male genetic background the outcomes are very different. I mean, yeah. to you and Art and me and a lot of people, that's not really all that surprising, but because the context was not really considered and then the context was shifted, mm -hmm. you know, that is, wow, that's, that's really different. All right, you bird people. So, so what <laughs> is the most model system bird species? Is it, is it house sparrows? Is it, you know, chickens? Is it, what, what is it? Well, I suppose it's zebra finches. Your listeners may not know <laughs> that when we turn in a grant to the National Science Foundation, we have a little form that we need to fill out to say, is this about aquatic systems or terrestrial systems? And is it about education? Is it about research? And what model organism is the research about? And then there'll be, I don't know, you know maybe eight or nine of them. And one of them is a white crowned sparrow, and that's, I, think there's a, I think there's a story behind that. But one of them is not the junco, I can tell you that. So there have been times when I fill out that form and I write in dark junco <laughs> on the line that says other. <laughs> but, um, you know, so uh, model systems are, have, t have taught us a lot. That's all. We really have to know that they've taught us a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then if we want to conclude that we would like to have the fullest understanding we can, we've got to include context. And that would call a broader array of model organisms. So the zebra finch is probably the most studied, certainly studied for vocal behavior, neuroendocrine, hormonal development, but it's not seasonal. So the questions that I'm most interested in are things that the bird does differently in the breeding season and the wintering season and the movements in between, and I can't study the zebra finch to find out about that. If I want to know what it takes to turn a migrant into a resident or a seasonal breeder, <laughs> I, I have to work with a seasonal breeder, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah. You so, think it should be, should I have said house sparrow? 
Of course, you should have said House Sparrow. <laughs> House Sparrow, I think, is on that NSF form. Um, it has been in the past. I'm not sure it's there anymore, but it has been in the past. You know, already, I think it still comes back to the your definition of model. There was an, a definition in your head when you asked us that question, and clearly one in NSF's collective head when they made their list. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I, I guess you, you made the great point that I don't want to come across as disparaging model organism research because there's so many fundamental contributions and improvements in health and many, many different things that have happened from the study of this handful of things that were really easy to work with in the lab and don't they're not hard to care for. It's, they're easy to feed. They eat everything. They grow in all conditions. I mean, <laughs> those are, are very important organisms. I just think that now that we have the opportunity, and I, this is leading to a question, believe it or not, you mentioned this um, integration reintegration in biology Mm -hmm. that seems to be something that a lot of biology whether it's the federal government or you know most of us that are doing the work are really aspiring towards so what do you i mean what are your priorities now does it have anything to do with linking model systems or putting model systems in natural context or developing tools for juncos that are you know more precise or at least more modern than things that have been used before what's your vision about reintegration well i just spent six weeks <laughs> <laughs> working on a proposal that up until about two hours ago yeah, right that, is a fresh, <laughs> that will fresh. be submitted today <laughs> that was in response to you know a national science foundation call for the reintegration of biology when i was a graduate student we had a botany department and a zoology department and a microbiology department then uh departments all over the country reorganized, and they reorganized by scale or by level of organization into cell and molecular biology departments, into genetics and developmental biology, and then possibly in our case to evolution, ecology, and behavior. And in many cases, the splits went all the way. So the departments uh, were had their own structure, their own administration, their own whatever. And that doesn't seem very sciencey, but it does have an effect hmm. because that's, you know, you want to change people's behavior, look at the reward system. So the reward system is very level of organization oriented and uh, doing something out in the field. If you're a fly person is not likely to be anything more than a, than a hobby. So I think if we want to be able to apply all those amazing tools that have been developed in model systems to broader questions, many of which I think are socially very important. We have very complex societal problems that have biology at their core that we want to be able to address rapidly because we're in a rapidly changing environment. We need to bring these branches of biology back together Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, not be competing with one another, really just seeing the value in a context-laden approach to science or the value in a highly reductionist approach to science where you get a very clear answer, at least within a a narrowly defined set of of conditions. So I'm all for reintegration of biology. I watched it splinter. I think it needs to come back together for new basic science insights and for solving complex societal problems. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, let's get on with it. (laughs) You know, I think it would be good. How do you you break down the silos that that need to be gotten rid of, right? There's so much inertia in the groups that are pre-existing, and I think, you know, administrators and universities have particular visions about the way things are ran. Like, how how do you break all that down and mix it back together in a way that, that integrates? Yeah, well, you don't underestimate the challenge. That's one thing you do, (laughs) really, because the budgets often go to these units. And then these units have leaders who were hired to defend those budgets. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there has to be um, some 
overriding source of reward that will enable people to feel that they can advance in their ability to train the next generation, advance in their ability to have new insights through collaboration. So the National Science Foundation is, in fact, uh, this grant that we just finished, were we one of the lucky ones, it would be $12 million to revamp uh, the way certain science was done and to have a epigenetics plant biologist working with a community plant biologist to determine how changes in the environment are going to affect timing of important events in natural populations. And the emergent science could be just great, just fascinating as, uh, you know, as basic science and also informative about as the environment changes where these plants going to live? When are they going to flower? Are they going to have a pollinator when they need one? Uh, the basis for life in these plants is largely a function of, of timing, and timing is going to be affected by a changing environment. We need all these tools uh, to work together, so we have to reward it. We have to stand here and say, we think this is important. We will benefit from this if we do it. Okay, so Ellen... Um uh, we'd also want to ask you about uh, just sort of some basic questions about career advice for early stage scientists. So, you know, graduate students and postdocs. And, and I'm, I'm motivated to ask this because you're, you're well known to be such a great mentor and, and you've run a, you know, a large and vibrant lab for a long time. And many of your students have gone on to great, great success. And, you know, I, I think that what, what I see when I talk with students elsewhere and at University of Montana is also a lot of anxiety and stress about, you know, are they going to make it through and are they going to be able to find the next thing and will they ever get a job because jobs are so scarce and, you know, the outlook just seems increasingly grim. So what do you, what do you tell students? Oh, golly. This lack of certainty about whether there'll be a position at the end of the PhD as students hope when they come in is creating, just as you said, a great deal of stress and anxiety. Um, and when people come to interview, responsible faculty members say, you know, this is a five-year program. It's likely to emphasize heavily your research skills, but it's not a guarantee uh, for what your career outcome would be. It's, it's not, people are not hearing that at that stage. They're, they're, I mean, it's lovely. They're drawn to the science. They've enjoyed being researchers. They want to perfect their research skills. So that's I, I, that's not a. I mean, that's a that's a momentary but not going away situation that we all need to to grapple with. And I think again, the National Science Foundation is coming in and rewarding uh, or programs and stru and uh, structures for training graduate students that. Uh, emphasize a greater range of potential outcomes as opposed to all being, you know, a research one faculty member, research one being a, a university that focuses on, uh, on research. Yeah. So not everybody's going to go through and become a professor. There are many other things that you can, you can do. Yeah. And they're good. So one thing that an advisor can do is, is not set up a value system where that's success and everything else isn't success, you know, because it's not true. <laughs> so one th one reason not to do it is it's not true. And another yeah. reason not yeah. to do it is, is to provide a, a supportive environment to let people develop their, develop their skills. Um, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, everybody, well, I don't think that 
there's one way to be a graduate advisor, and I don't think there's one set of advice that you can give graduate students because, obviously, they're all different from each other. Anybody who tries... Context matters. Yes, context (laughs) Context, matters. Well, that's right, and if you have a bunch of guidelines for how to do it, uh, you're going to be like the Red Queen. I mean, you're going to be applying something <laughs> to a student that's not that way anymore. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a different kind of a student. So listen, you know, real basic stuff. Listen. When, and they don't change that much. I think that's the other thing. When students come to you, even though you have five years and you might think that they would develop into very different people, they certainly mature. They certainly gain a whole lot of skills. But they're fundamentally who they are. That's set by the time you meet them at 23 or 25. So enjoy you know, enjoy the relationship. It's got aspects of family to it because you support each other and you're loyal and you are invested in each other's success. And then there's things that, you know, it's not family because they have parents and you have kids <laughs> <laughs> that you have, you know, that kind of obligation too. But I think the degree to which you can make a commitment to each other, I'm, as your advisor, here to promote your success and you as a student are here to develop as rapidly and fully as you can, how can we help each other? Is, uh, and so I ask that of your advisor. You know, what, what mm-hmm. advice do I have? I expect that from your advisor, and yeah. if you aren't, maybe consider another one. But I, most of the people I know, you read these horror stories about academics and stuff, and it's just not my experience. Yeah. You know, my experience is with scientists who are caring, they're rigorous, and they keep their promises and they tell the truth and they're, they're good people um, so I, I think we can just live who we are and uh, create more trust Ellen is an exemplary integrative biologist she works with wild birds to understand how large scale patterns in life history and behavior emerge from underlying physiological mechanisms From her early work on hormones as evolutionary constraints to her more recent forays into the role of the microbiome in avian mate choice, Ellen's research approach is powerful because she studies complex systems in the natural context in which they evolved. One of her favorite topics, and ours too, which long-term listeners will know, is pleiotropy. Her work reveals that hormones like testosterone act as hubs in physiological networks with pervasive effects on many different physiological and behavioral traits. Ramp up testosterone to defend your territory better and potentially pay the cost of caring less about or less well for your offspring. On our next episode, we talk with Martin Wikelski, director of the Max Planck Institute for Animal Behavior in Radopzell, Germany. Besides having the great fortune of being my PhD advisor, Martin is working on one of the biggest projects we've ever covered on the show. Through an initiative called Project Icarus, Martin and colleagues are tracking thousands of animals simultaneously from space. They use receivers on the International Space Station and radio tags on animals on the surface to understand how animals migrate, how bats and other species spread infections, and even whether livestock can predict earthquakes better than we can. We're getting close to the end of Season 2 and preparing for Season 3 next fall. We have a bunch of great guests lined up to talk about the evolution of venom, insect intelligence, and human evolution. But we need your financial support to make that happen. The biggest portion of our funding comes from the University of South Florida, but that may dry up soon. That means we need to rely more on advertising and donations from you, our listeners. To be blunt, if we can't substantially increase our support stream from listeners in the next few weeks, we might need to drastically scale back production for Season 3. 
We really don't want to do that, but podcasts are expensive to produce. We recently estimated that it costs about $3,200 to produce one episode. We know that you love Big Biology, so if you want to hear it continue in its current format, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bigbio, and make a recurring donation. You can also make a one-time donation at our website, bigbiology.org. Truly, this is a make-or-break moment for the show, and we need you to support us. Again, you can make a donation at patreon.com slash bigbio or at bigbiology.org. And also, if you know of companies or organizations that are looking to advertise on shows like ours, please send us tips. Those can come to info at bigbiology.org. We need those advertisers to come through to make this work as well. A final and free way to help us out is just by recommending Big Biology to a friend or family member. Think of someone you know who would enjoy the podcast and tell them about us, or spread the word about your favorite episode via Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We also want to encourage you to leave us a review and a rating on iTunes and tell us what you think of each episode. Thanks to Morgan Levy and Matt Ploys for producing this show. Michael Levine helps with social media and Patreon. And as always, Steve Lane manages our website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on this episode is from Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions.